Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Today we're going to finish up the little book of 1 John. This is the fifth chapter, fifth message we've had in the series. And then Doug's going to do the little book of 2 John next week and then 3 John the week after. And so as we go into 1 John chapter 5, so I'm reading this thing, I, I thought, you know, the best way to handle this is kind of like Terry Pluto does. So I, I get the Sunday Plain Dealer. I hate this paper. I mean, it's all what purports to be news is just like political propaganda through that thing. But they have a good sports section on Sunday morning. And <coughs> Terry Pluto will uh, periodically do a column where he calls it Talking to Myself. So what he'll do is he'll ask questions that he's been thinking about and then answer them as well as he can, right? Uh, And so what I did was I thought, you know, this chapter kind of answers some of the questions that I have had as I've gone through my Christian life. And I'll bet you you've had some of these questions too. And so let's let's do that. Um, The first question that I have here is, how can I actually love God? You know how in the Bible it talks about, you know, love God with all your heart. It says that again and again. And love your neighbor as yourself. But loving God, how do you do that? I mean, I, I was thinking, does that mean we're supposed to ramp up kind of the emotions we feel about God? Or how do you do that? You, you can't see him, you know. And it starts off in chapter 5 this way. John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. We know that we love God's children if we love God and obey his commandments. Loving God means keeping his commandments. God's love language, or one of his love languages, is to be obeyed. And if you think about it, it's it's like this. When I do what he tells me to do, God is trusted and respected and loved. And I can relate to this as like a high school teacher. Uh, You know, sometimes what I'll do is I'll give assignments of, you know, difficult assignments, books that are hard to read. And I'm, you know, when students, I see from, you know, testing them and stuff that they're actually doing the assignments, reading the books, you know, uh, doing what I've told them to do. That really makes me feel good. I feel like, okay, they're, they're trusting what I said, that this is going to be worthwhile. They're respecting me in doing this. I feel kind of like, I feel loved. You know? And those of you who are parents, I think you understand this, don't you? It's like when your kids you know, trust you enough to obey you and they respect you like that. That's a good feeling. And I think that's where God is. I think especially when there are times, and this happens to all of us, when what God tells us to do is hard and we don't want to do it. We're going like, no, my inclination is to do something else. And yet when we do it anyway, because God told us to, I, you know, he's going, yeah, I, I, can feel, I can feel the love. But that leads me, well, to a second question, and it kind of kicks off with this. I've been uh, reading through the Brothers Karamazov in Unabridged. It's like a thousand pages long. I'm, I'm at page 300 right now, okay? This is hard. But there's this, these brothers, and one of them's named Ivan, and he's not a believer. And he's challenging his younger brother, Alyosha. He's going, yeah, I don't believe. You know, you're, a, you're a believer. I don't. And he says, 
there's a certain confession I have to make to you. I have never been able to understand how it's possible to love one's neighbor. In my opinion, the people it is impossible to love are precisely those near to one, while one can really love only those who are far away. In order to love a person, it's necessary for him to be concealed from view. The moment he shows his face, love disappears. Haven't you ever thought that? Like, the more you get to know certain people, the less you want to love them? You know, it's like it's easy to love people in the abstract. Oh, yeah, I love mankind, you know. I, I love people and stuff. Or to go like, you know, I'll, I'll cut a check here to help the homeless that I don't know. But those neighbors who've got the dogs that bark all the time, you know, or don't take care of their stuff, and they're rude, and they're just, they're annoying and stuff like that. You're going like, how do you love people like that? But it brings up this whole question, I think, of is it actually possible to obey God's commands? Now, I grew up in kind of a real uh, old-fashioned Lutheran tradition, right? And it's, it was kind of weird. It was like, it always seemed to me as a kid that we prided ourselves in not doing good works. Like we go, you know, those Catholics, they're just trusting their good works, but we don't do good works, you know? And we'd have these like Reformation rallies at the end of October where it would be like all Lutherans would go downtown Milwaukee to the auditorium, and we'd sing a mighty fortress, and then some guy would get up there and denounce Catholics and talk about how Martin Luther was great. You know, this is, we're talking a lot of years ago here, right? And they always go, yeah, Catholics and good works. And, you know, and I kind of got this impression as a kid that as Lutherans, uh, we were kind of like poor, miserable sinners, but we're just trusting in the grace of God. And, and it's like God's commands, that's for other denominations. I mean, it's just weird. You get these thoughts when you're little, right? But is it actually possible to obey God's commands? And uh, John goes on, and he says, and his commandments are not too hard for us. Isn't that interesting? For every child of God defeats this evil world, and we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he, he's going like, for us, they're not too hard. And the implication here is that we have an advantage as people who have faith in Jesus over other people in the world who don't. And maybe you've kind of sensed this yourself. You've gone like, you know what? Since becoming a believer, it's like things are, it's easier to do what God wants. And so that leads me to my third question, which is how is it possible to obey God's commands? Like what do we got going for ourselves here now that we maybe didn't before? Or what do we have going for ourselves that people in the world don't have access to? And so I think it's a question of power. And I, let me give you an illustration of this, just an analogy here. This picture you see is of the Harris Ranch Tesla supercharger station. It's in California. It's the biggest electric vehicle charging station in the world. And um, there's been a lot of, like, discussion about this place because there's been stories that they're actually like where, where does electricity come from how do you get electricity it doesn't grow on trees you know you can't like suck it out of the air and so there's like a lot of rumors that they're actually getting their power from a diesel diesel generators down the road you tends to disconnect there and they're going no we don't you know blah 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 but so i thought this this raised a question with me i thought 
So how is electricity generated? Like, what's the power source for electricity? So I actually did some research on this, and this is what I discovered. Do you know that 35% of our electricity is generated by natural gas, and 30% is generated by coal? So two-thirds of electricity is generated from fossil fuels. Isn't that interesting? It's like, is, is this like, wait a minute, is this is... Um, and you think about like China, they're building all these electric vehicles, but they're building thousands of coal plants to generate the electricity for them. So the question comes up, what is the power source? What's the power source for the Christian life? And there's a couple of things. Uh, John, in his gospel, chapter 14, he told his disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Again, he's saying, yeah, do it. And then he says, I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another counselor who will stay with you forever. Like Jesus was their first counselor here, and he's gonna, he said, I'll give you another one. He is the Spirit who reveals the truth about God. The world can't receive him because it cannot see him or know him, but you know him because he remains with you and is in you. So what he's saying here is, you as my followers are going to receive the Spirit who will live in you, and the Spirit is the counselor. Now, that's a word that literally means walks alongside, calls out to. Someone who is like, the way I would put it is he's directing you and he's motivating you to do good. He's doing this for me, he's doing this for you. So it's like, literally like a lawyer that you go to with a tough problem. And what should I do, you know? And the lawyer goes, here's what I would suggest. Here, here's the way you should go. And he urges you to to do it. I, I, I did this last night, and it, it was pain me to do it, because Chris Steinman was there, and I said, it's like having a Jim Harbaugh, the coach of Michigan. I mean, the guy, for all you, you know, he's very successful. He knows how to direct people on football field, both in the NFL and in college, and he knows how to motivate people. And it's just like having a coach coming alongside you going, no, no, do this. I mean, you know the feeling, don't you? Where you just feel that urge to do the right thing there or you're, you're going to head down the wrong road and you feel, no, no, don't do that, don't do that. You know, and sometimes it's just like he's on your case to finally get you to go like doing the right thing and then when you do that right thing, you go like, yes. Because he's going like, yeah, you did well, you did well. So we have that going for us. And it says, those who've been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning. This was earlier in 1 John. Because God's seed is in them. That word seed in the Greek is sperma. It's like God's very seed, the very you know, life of God is growing in us as believers. So they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. So it's, it's really talking about, I think, a change in our attitude where we used to be so rebellious. You remember, you know, you'd be told what to do and you're going, ah, that just makes me want to do it even more. But I think what happens to us as believers, that changes as God, the very nature of God grows in us. And now we're going, yeah, God's telling me to do that thing. It makes sense. It's good. I remember after becoming a believer, reading through the Old Testament law, and I thought, this is so wise. It's so good. It makes a lot of sense. You know, God knows his commandments are, are so good. You know, so we've got this advantage going for us. So the fourth question I've got is, 
What evidence is there that Jesus is worth trusting? Because he says, you know, the faith, the faith we have in him defeats the world. So what evidence is there? And we come to a, a passage that I think is kind of hard. Uh, people, I think, have disputed this passage quite a bit. So verse 6 says, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. What exactly does that mean? Well, there's one school of thought that says what this is really saying is that Jesus lived a full life as a human. Not only was he God, but he actually lived that full human life. So the idea is, you know, those of you who are moms, you know this, that before that child comes forth, the water breaks. You know, it's like coming forth from water. And the blood, I think, would indicate that he, li- you know, he was born, he lived, he died. That's one way of looking at it. Um, another way is to, is to think about it, and I'll just uh, go on here, uh, maybe to explain it a little bit. In the Gospel of John, John quotes John the Baptist and it, talking about what happened at Jesus' baptism. So he says, Then John testifies, I saw this Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. There was a voice at Jesus' baptism that announced that he was God's son, you know, and listened to him, right? So this is the kickoff of Jesus' ministry. So it's the idea when Jesus came by water, he stepped into a ministry that was powerful in teaching and in miracles. And that might be what the water is about there. And then the blood, you remember this, John records this in chapter 19. When they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. He's on the cross. So they didn't break his legs like they would customarily do to hasten people's death by suffocation when you're crucified. One of the soldiers, however, pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water flowed out. I asked a cardiologist last night who was here, I said, is this true what I've read that the fluid builds up around the heart when you die? And he says, yeah, in many cases it does. And so in this case, when this guy hit Jesus with the spear, it was like water and blood flowed out. He was indeed dead. This report is from an eyewitness giving an accurate account. He speaks the truth, so you also may continue to believe. So the, by water and blood, it's like Jesus came with a ministry, but he also died, and, and we know as believers, paid for our sin, atoned for us. That's so important that that aspect is in there too. Gandhi was going like, I can buy the water, but I can't really by the blood part. So Gandhi said, Jesus is a great world teacher, among others, but my reason is not ready to believe literally that Jesus by his death and by his blood redeemed the sins of the world. Do you see what a bad position that puts Gandhi in? I mean, he's going like, yeah, he inspires me with his teaching, but what happens when you fall short? Like we all do, even with that counselor and even with that seed of God in us, we're still wayward many times, you know? And we need the blood. We need that atoning sacrifice of Jesus. 
But there's something else here. So let's go on. And it says, and it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, because, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. What the Holy Spirit then testifies is this is true. He speaks it to our hearts, and he tells us this, and then he also tells us that Jesus is alive. And if you look at John's account in John 20 about the Spirit, as Jesus spoke Easter night, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus said, here's my spirit that's going to live in you. And so we've got a living Savior right here. I, uh, my wife and I watched this movie one night. It was a Japanese movie called Tokyo Sonata. And it, it, the story's about that guy in a white shirt there, the father in the family, and he gets laid off from work. But he's so ashamed of losing his job, he doesn't tell his family. He tries to fake it like he still has the job. And this deception kind of kicks off deception in their lives and kind of a chain reaction. And it's so interesting in that movie, at one time or another, in that movie, every, other, every one of the main characters says, I wish I could start my life over. You ever felt like that? You ever find yourself in a position where it's just like you've gone a wrong way? You're going, man, I wish I could start over. I wish I could have rebirth. And I think this is what the gospel message is, is that there's new life for us in Christ. Because of his ministry, because of his death, his atoning death, the Spirit is saying there's a way to start again and have real life. And in verse 10, John goes on and he says, Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And it was just like a couple days ago I realized, wait a minute, it says this life is in his Son. It doesn't say the life was in Jesus, but it is in Jesus. He is alive. And that makes all the difference. And that's why it says in verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's where the 